like to begin this evening's talk with a few moments as though uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama, the about-to-be Buddha. So as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with him 2,500 years ago. So settling in to your seat. and bringing your attention in as well as opening the ear doors. Towards the end of that long and now very famous night under the bow tree and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive destructive forces in the mind had let fly all the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama. These arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from his clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara then shot the last arrow because none of the others stuck. He shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are, anyway? And the Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest in a penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment this about to be Buddha supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta with his amazing grace he just simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was and Mara was defeated never again to have any power over the Buddha And 
And so we said, maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha, but we sit and we practice. We sit and we walk, practicing here in retreat over weeks and for some of you a month. And all of you have practiced and will most likely practice intensively again in some other places at other times, alone and in the company of others. Our aspirations and our determinations are often very clearly and very strongly felt, felt and known, though sometimes they pale and sometimes they might even be forgotten in the unfolding of our life. But certainly for many of us, probably for most of us here, more often than not, they're woven into the very constitution of our practice, the very constitution of our lives. And so as we do practice over the years, through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated, and unprompted at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow. They continue to deepen and develop. They continue to mature and to be known within our own selves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, I'd like to touch into and explore the quality or the factor of mind with you that the Buddha said was like a precious gem, a precious jewel. Mindfulness, sometimes spoken of as awareness or mindful awareness. Mindfulness is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the one that weaves its way into all the other six factors. And the factors are mindfulness, investigation of states, or sometimes spoken of as clear discernment, effort, energy, joy is an enlightenment factor, calm, tranquility is an enlightenment factor, concentration, and equanimity. And as I said, mindfulness is the one factor that weaves its way into must be present in relationship to all of the other factors of enlightenment. So this evening we'll begin to explore mindfulness from the standpoint of it being the most essential factor of liberation. We'll look into mindfulness from two different perspectives. That of our own very direct experience, our cultivation and prompting of this quality through our ongoing practice. And within this, recognizing the great power 
the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and as it takes root in us. And we'll also touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its, we could call, unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, of the heart, of non-clinging. The very natural place of mindfulness in the liberated mind, in the liberated heart. And as I already mentioned, the Buddha spoke many times about mindfulness as being like a precious gem. And that its development is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. The very conditions we have here on retreat. Mindfulness is a very key factor for the mind, the heart, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case meaning the letting go into liberation, the letting go into Nibbana or Nirvana. Nibbana being the Pali word, Nirvana being the Sanskrit word. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which from my own experiences facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to really relax deeply in and through the body. So right now, just take a moment to relax from head to toe. Let yourself drop into that relaxation. Dropping into the body with a very bright attention. Relaxed and at the same time brightly alert. Letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into directly and simply hearing. So this factor of mindfulness. I... uh, quite often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment. And in fact, really the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for our awakening. Within its establishment and its blossoming, It's the factor that offers us the greatest protection. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. And when I first uh, read this in the suttas, I thought, well, that's kind of a male way, a chief. And in my way, the female way or a a woman's way might be thinking about it as the mother. 
So then I decided to put them together and call mindfulness the chief mother. (laughs) In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to to remember, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. Attention directed into the present moment. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our very strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, and purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of habitual inertia. Years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a very good question, um, with mindfulness being actually quite a common word these days. And some of its depth, because of that, I think some of its depth, some of its potency has been dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. And I mean by this, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a very powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, or how it should be, or how it could be. Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And it's sometimes also called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to the truth, opening the door to understanding to insight that we may not always know uh, in the linear cognitive way that we most often know things. So it opens the door to the truth that sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to really meet the experience of the moment with a very fresh, connected intimacy. To come close 
and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects with and goes right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed, not a sticky kind of connection. Mindful attention is clear, it's fluid, and it lights on the object just long enough and deep enough to really know it. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it happens to be connecting with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, it's a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. So, in this light, mindfulness doesn't think. It doesn't think, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. In fact, the moment that we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious and we're creating or recreating a sense of self. Again, then creating a separation, a kind of disconnection from the reality of how it is, separating our self out of the truth of the way of things. So again, creating the duality of it and me and living in an idea, actually, the idea of I, the idea of me. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the present moment's experience. So in this sense, we forget our self. We, in a sense, lose our self in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magic created by magicians that uh, creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and really the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. Without it, we're imprisoned. Imprisoned in the assumed appearance, imprisoned in the habitual assumed appearance of things. And then caught again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we quite unnecessarily, often unnecessarily, suffer in this 
believed unreality. Krishnamurti again said, if we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want happiness. Most of us want our lives to be, much of our experience in life to be permanent, to be ongoing, or at least for it to be very deeply fulfilling. Or we want it to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, or our heartfelt and deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to find this, trying to satisfy these deep desires, through mostly through external experiences, by getting this or that, or him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. Or we try to find, we try to get an ongoing contentment, a, a permanent happiness, fulfillment, through this constantly changing world of our senses and through the various and myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. It's not possible. Take a look. Look closely. Look very closely. Come close and see and feel your experience very directly. The Buddha spoke about happiness beyond our ordinary experiences of pleasure. In fact, he said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. That's all it takes, actually. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really, truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. This is really a practice of the deepest intimacy, the intimacy of a very direct connection with the immediacy of experience in our body and our mind and heart. The deepest intimacy with our own experiences which as our practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, to be intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? Essentially, this is what all forms of Buddhist practice lead to. How is it in experiencing the I? 
the ear, the nose, the tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to the present moment's experience is what allows clarity and a really true understanding, insight to arise. To just simply and very naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We really don't have to do anything to make it happen. The truth is not very far away at all. It's right here. It's ever-present. It's immediately close. Always and everywhere, intimately, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago, I was teaching a class, um, meditation class, and for a few weeks, over a period of a few weeks, the students would go home with uh, the particular topic of, of the class. Uh, uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness was the basic topic. And they would practice during the week, and then they would come back, and they would share. At the beginning of each class, we would share some of their experience. One uh, class, uh, one of the women in the class came back, and she said um, she had an insight this week in practicing while she was watering her garden. She said she watered her head, watered her garden hundreds of times over the years. But this day felt like it was the first time she'd ever really watered her garden because it was the first time she felt that she was ever fully present watering her garden. And she talked about that a little bit, described it as much as she could. It's hard to describe those things, but she tried. And, uh, and then she said, she questioned, she offered us a question. She said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? And then she went on to say, terrible things have been done in this world when mindfulness hasn't been present. And it all kind of, we all kind of sat back with that and shook our heads and it was good food for thought. Quite an insight, really. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And so we practice, we develop, we prompt this transformation through our meditation practice. Meditation that's based in mindfulness, based in mindful awareness, is what our practice is. In fact, if we're not mindful, not bringing our full attention to the present moment. What's happening is is that we're living at a distance from experience. Living at a distance, in fact, from life itself. Which keeps the cycle, the circle and cycle of conditioned habit patterns, the reactive cycle going round and round and round. And it feeling and strengthening itself as it does this. So we're more on automatic. We're more kind of robotic-like, sort of like our computers. You push the button and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, 
out pops our conditioned patterns, our conditioned habitual reactions quite automatically if we're not mindful. Without mindful awareness, it's as though we're living our life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of various ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, or similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably everyone in this room has had at one point or another. You meet someone new, someone you've never met before, and you don't actually meet them and see them as they actually are. You might see them in relationship to what you're thinking about them, how much you think you like them, or how much you think you're attracted to them, or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities that you're thinking about in somebody else. Or you maybe see this new person in how you hope they are, or what you might want from them, or what you might hope you can get from them, or hope you won't get from them. And there's many more possibilities. So you're not experiencing this person that you've just met for the very first time. You're not experiencing them in themselves. Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, hear, eat, touch, smell, think. All of the various states of mind is are immediately interpreted back to us, back to ourselves, in conformity with our habitual thoughts, our habitual habit patterns, if we're not mindful. Meditation practice grounded in mindfulness sets the stage for bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they really, truly are, as though for the first time, and without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with beginner's mind, with don't-know mind. A story that uh, I like to tell um, as an illustration of this is um, a number of years ago now, my grandson, when he was two and a half years old, he's 11 now, um, I happened to have the good fortune of being with him, he and his mother, uh, the very first time that he saw a pine cone. And he picked up this pine cone, and he looked at it, turned it all around, looked at it from every possible angle. He stuck it up in front of his nose and smelled it all over. He stuck his tongue out and tasted it, licked it all over. He was investigating it thoroughly with all, through all of his sense doors. And we were watching him, his mother and I. And then we dutifully, uh, grandmother and mother said, gave him the name for what he was looking at. We said, 
that's a pine cone. And he looked up at us kind of quizzically, but was a good boy and so repeated pine cone, and then immediately went back to his direct uh, experience of pine cone. He didn't really care about the name. With, of course, a mind that was totally fresh, totally open, a really true beginner's mind. This is a state of mind that we can learn to bring into our life as a whole. As we learn, or we could say relearn, to do this, it's transformative. It's transformative and healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine the best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. And one description uh, that I uh, like, uh, particularly like a lot goes something like this. One who is awakened, one who has taken the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation and has healed the sickness is one who is freed from suffering. And that's really the very deepest healing that we as humans can know. Freedom from the suffering of confusion, the suffering of anguish, fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness. There are four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And so this evening I'd like to spend some time exploring the first of these domains. The next three will uh, be uh, explored in my next talk. So this first domain of mindfulness is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's feelings or ideas or concerns or interpretations or emotions about it. And of course there are many and varied aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. So we'll explore these, some of these. One of our primary orientations to the body through our practice is mindfulness of breathing, as we're all aware of. And I have to say, because I I think that sometimes there's some misunderstanding about this, breath as an object of our mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. The understanding that's accessible via this mode of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing, is potentially quite profound, actually. In making, for instance, the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the breath at the nostrils, the in and out breath at the nostrils, making this a basic ground of our attention. Personally, I have at times over the years in my practice been deeply grateful 
and actually even awed at the depth and breadth of what there is to be known and what there is to be understood with a very simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath happening. So just for a moment now, close your eyes and let the attention drop into the breath. Wherever in your body it's most clearly and easily connected with and known. And mindfully absorb, letting the attention absorb into the rising and falling movement in the belly or the in and out sensations at the nostrils. Absorbing, mindfully absorbing the attention, letting the attention absorb without any self or with as little self as possible. Are you trying to control? Are you trying to manipulate the breath? Just noticing. Noticing without judgment. Noticing without self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. At times we might particularly notice each breath, each inhalation, each exhalation very directly as sensation, as movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. Noticing it maybe right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to its end. And maybe actually noticing the ending, noticing the sensation of the breath and the beginning of the next breath, the next inhalation. Or we may simply notice the in and out breathing itself. It's basically just this, in and out. Which tends to cultivate an increasingly quiet and tranquil and peaceful breathing. And an all-over body-mind calm and tranquility. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, casual way of a very natural noticing and awareness of our bodily activity. But a closer, more intimate, and more constant and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking and in all of the movements of the body, getting up, 
moving down, flexing and extending the arms, the legs, turning, carrying things, even bringing mindfulness to the experiences of falling asleep, waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? A me? An I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be simply known as standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once, uh, many years ago, one of my teachers, Sada Opandita, asked me in a practice interview, he said, Is there a woman or a man or a person when you're fully connected, mindful, and noticing walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations? Well, for just a very brief moment, I felt quite caught in the question, which in retrospect, I think, was uh, kind of a test of my practice at the time. But very quickly, my response to Sada Opendita was a, quite a spontaneous reflection. And I responded, no, there's no man, no woman, no anybody known when I'm very directly connected with, a mindful, with mindfulness in walking or whatever phenomena is happening. So it's a question you might ask yourself sometimes at some point. And maybe through this great intimacy of mindfulness, of mindful attention of the body, in the body, we also begin to notice some of the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins in us. It's subtle, but it's available to be known. Where it starts and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or sit or lift my arm or take a step. If we act from the place of identification, if we act from the place of separateness, of isolation, we will eventually or maybe quite quickly experience some degree of suffering. As we pay a closer, more intimate mindful attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body 
and the subtleties of the experiences within the body and their interrelatedness, we may begin to see and to know and understand the role of volition, where it comes from, how it arises, and not take it personally. And with this, in a non-conceptual way, come to know a deeper, subtler cause of suffering, which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena called our body. I had a student some years ago, a very deeply dedicated practitioner, right up into his dying moment. He was dying of AIDS. And I was sitting with him in the hospital one day, and as I did every day for a period of time, And he uh, stretched up his arm while he was lying in bed that day. And he looked at it very, very carefully, turned it around in every direction, looking at it took quite some time with this. And then in a very cool and yet odd way, he said one word. He said, wow. The form the posture and the movement of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions as anything else. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or a sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some experience or Roy, this man's body, Roy's body, being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because a whole set of condition because of a whole set of conditions coming together, moment by moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always the product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body, its movements, and the process of intentions that we begin to directly experience this? The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body in the body that the Buddha suggests we take a look at, or actually he doesn't really suggest it, he uh, quite directly directs us towards this, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And in the time of the Buddha there were 32 parts named. It's, that's how it's taught in the, in the classical texts. Hair, skin, all of the various internal organs and all the various fluids of the body. And in our case here, we most likely uh, notice them 
as they make themselves known, such as the stomach or the bladder or uh, maybe the liver or the gallbladder or the heart, the lungs, the skin, etc. So I have no doubt that we do notice many of the parts of our body during a retreat. But how often do we notice them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are we with the hair on our head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on our body, for instance? How do we attend to the experiences of our stomach, our colon, and the digestive processes therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do we experience moments in relationship to the skin? This bag of skin that holds all of the various contents of the body. How often do we experience our nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or any part of our body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness, mindful attention, a non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, interpretations, and emotions about it. Just the body as a body. And this is from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different from any other matter or form. Our human form is of the same elements as every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So again, a potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the I am identification. We might touch into this very directly, non-conceptually, through directly experiencing and knowing the experience of, of the experiences in our body of hardness, for instance, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, each of these being direct experiences of the earth element. When we come to know the experiences of flowing and cohesion in the body, we're connecting with the water element. And when we directly experience and intimately know heat and coldness, we know the fire element. The air element is experienced and known directly through the body through experiences of pushing and supporting. For instance, 
wherever there's a movement, such as the obvious sensations in the belly, when the belly distends or the, the chest expands with breathing, or the pulse uh, of the heart as the heart pumps. There's also pushing. How intimately, how mindfully connected are we to these most basic and universal kinds of experiences? This body in its elemental nature, essentially no different from any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something that we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting like this. But the truth is that there are many kinds of corpses around for us to observe in a place like this possibly insects, maybe birds, maybe other creatures, and certainly many corpses of the plants and the trees and the flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms of life are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've been in retreat at various times and in various places and quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued my observation and watching them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod, where we'd rented a house for a couple of months of practice together, I had the great good fortune, we could say, good fortune only in some circles, uh, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for a month, I walked down to that body and sat with it, for a little while, noticing the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was happening quite quickly as it was being helped along by the seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be quite delicious food. This daily practice over that month-long retreat was a a heart-mind-changing experience for me on, on a number of levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amravati Monastery in England and the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand. And he asked that he be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue, which uh, was not uh, something that the morgue uh, staff was uh, happy about. But because he was a monk, uh, the authorities let him go in, although they were quite reluctant about it. 
He says that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were quite fully challenged, or maybe more accurately, fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door of the morgue. But he just very mindfully stayed present, and little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell. Just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding the package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and his heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him. And he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, and was quite puzzled by this at first. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode at any moment. And he hoped that this wouldn't happen while he was there, which he was very happy didn't happen while he was there. He said that when he went back onto the street after that partial day of practice, that he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. Every living form is mortal. And we're so attached to forms, our own form and the form of others. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and almost unrecognizable desire for and attachment to. For instance, to the forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or just simply forms that are familiar to us. And I think what is actually strange and amazing is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in us. We can live with it almost always and not really know it. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress. Cutting through clinging. Cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? It's through our own direct experience that we come to understand the true nature of things. Not through thinking about or imagining or hoping for or philosophizing about or believing in. 
it can be quite helpful to check in now and then to see if we're practicing in ways that are really truly moving us towards realization towards understanding towards wisdom insight practice that's subtly or more overtly rooted in wrong ideas in misconceptions or misperceptions can become deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for many years a good question you might ask yourself now and then is am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking Through a clear, connected attention to this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body in the body, we may come to touch, even if only for a moment, the end of suffering. Our heart and mind opening in that moment to an unimaginable experience of ease, of peace, and a pervasive sense of well-being, which is really just simply our natural human potential, our natural human possibility. Mindfulness is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way each of us in our own unique way, which has to do with our particular specific conditioning. We find, we discover the treasures of the truth, the treasures of the way of things. Through our own experience, we discover the liberating treasures of who we are in the deepest and actually the most perfectly natural ways. Again, one of my teachers, Saida Upandita, speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma or one Dharma Again, Dharma being the Sanskrit, or Pali and Dharma being the Sanskrit. There's only one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is probably maybe a great relief to those who think they have to practice many, many things, many practices to become liberated. In Pali, the word for this one Dhamma is apamada, apamada which is sometimes translated as vigilance and which can be understood quite clearly as it's elaborated uh, on the commentaries to uh, the suttas, the Buddha suttas, as mindfulness. It's mindfulness. Mindfulness is the one dharma that we need to practice. And I'd like to close the talk with a Um, teaching from the Buddha it's kind of a lot of his teachings are in somewhat poetic form and this happens to be one of those It's it's an instruction really quite a wonderful and inspiring instruction that we can offer to ourselves it's called a single excellent night let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. 
Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in her or him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.